Imagine a time when technology overturned the known world, with machines making things faster, better than humans can. This threatens people's jobs and wages, while business owners get richer and inequality increases. Sound familiar? Is this our world today, or perhaps a dystopian future? In fact, this description comes from my guest today, and it's not of 21st century Europe or North America, but of the Industrial Revolution 250 years ago. Never had anyone dreamed that a machine could do so much. Welcome to OECD Podcasts. I'm Kate Lancaster. Today we are talking about the technological wave rushing through our factories, farms, offices, homes. Some are warning that all jobs are at risk, while others are optimistic. After all, hard changes have eventually turned out for the better in the past. So why not now? To help us understand the issues at stake, I am joined by Bob Allen, Distinguished Professor of Economic History at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Bob, hello and thank Hi, you. Kate. Hi. You're at the OECD today as part of our new Approaches to Economic Challenges initiative. Now, our approaches may be new, but are the challenges new? Can you, as an economic historian, give us some historical context for the current upheavals in the world of work? I think that the uh, world today has a lot in common with the world 250 years ago. If we look at, in the middle of the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution was just beginning. This involved uh, the use of machines to uh, produce things that had previously been made by hand, like cotton textiles that had been made with spinning wheels and, and hand looms in the past, and now they were being replaced with uh, factory production of these items. And at the time, people were really worried about the impact of technical change on jobs, uh, wages, and the future. And there were uh, riots, uh, uh, machines were destroyed because people were worried that they were going to take their jobs. Uh, so what's going on now is uh, certainly has precedent and is repeating things that we've seen in the past. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the impact were for people, someone, for example, who was a home weaver or home spinner? What, what changed for that person? Well, actually, the first victims of uh, casualties of technological uh, unemployment were women who were spinning uh, cotton and wool in their homes. So they're in the middle of the 18th century, Britain had a very, very large uh, hand manufacturing sector, uh, making textiles, uh, uh, metals, uh, tools, and things like that with hand processes. And so at the center of this, the biggest of these industries was the textile industries. And the uh, raw materials, the raw cotton or the raw wool, was converted into threads that were then made into uh, cloth. And these threads were uh, spun by uh, women generally uh, in their homes. People mm. would bring them raw materials, and they would do up the work and get paid. And so a big fraction of the uh, population was doing that, a big fraction of the women. And when the factories came in, uh, these jobs were all lost. And so women had never made that much money doing it, but it was an important supplement to family incomes and uh, its loss led to uh, mass poverty. And so what is the difference between the kind of technology that replaced jobs then and what we're seeing now? Well, today it's much more sophisticated. Of course. Uh, the machines are much more elaborate. They, we have computer-based systems and so forth. But I think that the, the underlying uh, nature of the technology in many ways is the same. So what basically happened in the 18th century was that uh, new 
machine production methods were developed, and that meant that each worker, each person had more equipment, more capital to work with, and also produced much more. And the extra output that they produced more than paid for the uh, for the capital that was being used. And it's really the same today, that lots of new technology involves the use of, um, of more capital, more machinery in some sense or another, and uh, it allows people to produce uh, each person to produce more stuff, but uh, they use more equipment to do it. One of the things we've been hearing about recently at the OECD is this idea of not losing your job to a robot who's going to come in and take your whole job and you're out of work, but of task fragmentation, where parts of your job will become automated, will be replaced by a machine, but you will still be there. You'll be working with the machine instead of being replaced by a machine. Is Perhaps this is a change that's different from a, someone who loses their loom to a factory. In yeah, terms but, of how you've talked a bit about how technologies advance and unfold and people move to the next technology, I'm wondering what, what you would have to say about task fragmentation. Well, there were a number of tasks that were involved, say, in uh, spinning cotton, uh, that uh, the cotton had to be uh, cleaned. Uh, it had to be carded. That was a preliminary process that got long strands that were then spun. Then it had to be wound. It had to be reeled onto uh, spindles to be shipped off. These were all done by usually one person, by a woman, or sometimes helped with the simpler ones by her children. And when this stuff moved into the factory, these became separate jobs and separate stages in the production process. And in fact, different machines were invented to do each of these stages. And so the kind of job task fragmentation that you're talking about develops in a very systematic way oh, uh, with factory production. Yeah, so the uh, scutchers were machines that broke up on the word, cotton. Yeah. And there were carding machines and there were spinning machines. And in fact, spinning got broken down to a few stages, each with its own machine and reeling and so forth. Yeah. And yet it still took less human labor than when the woman was doing it in her home. Oh, yeah. It was much faster. Yeah. It was much faster yeah. like that. So the, the price of cotton collapses. The cloth is very much cheaper today relative to anything that it was in the 18th century. Yeah. Well, that kind of collapse sounds catastrophic, and I know they know that it was at the time. But uh, today, many economists are quite optimistic about these massive technological changes that we're seeing in our workplaces and society, and arguing really that the economy has adjusted to these before, and so why not now? You've said this is simplistic, and can you tell us a bit why? Yeah, well, first of all, in its favor, it is important to emphasize that today probably more adults are working than at any time in the last couple of hundred years. This is in Western, advanced Western countries. And uh, so they haven't all lost their jobs. There's lots of jobs. The standard of living people have uh, is higher than it was in the 18th century. So in many ways, things are better. But getting from then to now has not been a smooth path. It's been a very bumpy road. Can you tell us some more about that? Yeah. So there have been long phases of history where uh, the technology has been improving and the productivity of labor has been improving, but the uh, workers haven't benefited from this. Uh, Their wages have not been going up. So I divide history into three phases, one from the middle of the 18th century up to, say, about 1830. Uh, That's the Industrial Revolution. Then the second is from 1830 up to about 1970. And the third is since 1970. And during the Industrial Revolution, the first phase, put per worker uh, went up quite a lot, as I said. sorry, what per worker? Output, production production per worker. Workers produced more stuff over this period, but their wages on average did not go up. So on average, all the gains from growth went to uh, the owners of businesses. In fact, it was a little bit worse than that because there was a big increase in inequality amongst workers. And people that were doing the handicraft work that was being displaced by technology, they really lost out. 
and they lost jobs and their incomes crashed, whereas people that were involved in the new systems, they did much better. So in the second phase of history from 1830 up to 1970, that's what people until recently thought was normal. And in that normal phase, so-called normal phase, you had productivity going up, so workers produced more and more stuff Mm -hmm. as time went by. And wages kept pace with that. So everybody benefited. And inequality went down. And that this is when all these positive effects that uh, people associate with technical change in the West took place. Mm-hmm. Um, but then from, 18, from 1970 onward, it's all kind of unraveled again. And in this phase of history, we've got more technology, makes people more productive. So they, on average, they're all producing more stuff year by year. But, um, but the average wage is not going up. And lots of people are losing out. Do we know why? I I think an important feature of it is globalization. uh, There's two features. One is globalization and the other is technical change, but they work in tandem uh, with each other. Uh, So globalization actually has been an ongoing process from the early, from the end of the 18th century till today. So markets have become more integrated around the world over time. In the 19th century, This process benefited workers in the West, and it benefited them because Britain, the leading manufacturing country, was able to export its now cheap cotton goods to uh, Africa and Asia. And so the result was that they deindustrialized Africa and Asia. These used to be the biggest manufacturing economies in the world and made lots of cotton textiles. When was that? That would have been up to, say, 1750. Then they were exporting cotton textiles to Europe, right. and whereas a big fashion craze. And that led people in Europe to try to manufacture these very valuable products and imitate them. But to do that, they had to invent machines, and that's what they did. They had to invent machines because it was the only way they could compete with lower-wage Asian producers. But in the 19th century, the trade flows reverse because the machine production method used in the West, they could outcompete the... Uh, the Asian producers, and they drove these the Asian firms out of business. So textile production mostly stopped in Africa and Asia. And this allowed British industry to get bigger and bigger because it supplied all these markets. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the factors that underpinned the rise in wages in Europe after the middle of the 19th century. But today, it's all reversing again. So industry has finally taken off in East Asia. First, it was Japan, then it was Taiwan and South Korea, and now it's China exporting huge amounts of stuff to, uh, to the West. And this is causing uh, deindustrialization in the West. So we've got this systemic problem of uh, unbalanced development leading to the uh, destruction of what had been the kind of motor that had produced Western prosperity in the past. So if we're looking backwards, what kind of, what kind of lessons can we draw for policy solutions today? It's, it's hard to know sometimes It's what a next. difficult one. It's a very grand question. Yes. Uh, but I the think, OECD, <laughs> we specialize in that's that. That's right. Well, I think that uh, some things are important. I think that um, – so a, a common answer to your question is we should have more education, that uh, the people that are losing their jobs don't have very much education often. They and need different skills. They need, they need retraining. Yeah, so – Retraining is going to help people who lose their jobs. Retraining programs are not always so successful. Educating the young uh, so that uh, people are better better adapted when they become adults uh, and start working, that's a good thing to do. But I don't actually think it's enough. I think that uh, two things. I think we, we, we ought to think more 
exactly about how we can address both the effects of technology and the effects of globalization. So on the globalization issue, right now, the ascendant ideas are populist ideas, that we deal with globalization by reducing migration from poor countries to rich countries, and we stop trading. We prevent them from exporting their products, poor countries from exporting to rich countries. And I don't think freezing the process like this, freezing the state of world as as it is today, is the right thing to do. We've Uh, seen it's changed back and forth just in the past few hundred years. So is freeze even possible? Well, uh, yes, that's true. But I think it's better... If we're going to do anything, I think what we ought to do is try to accelerate the development of the poor countries so that their wage levels rise and this problem of unequal trade disappears that way. And that way, everybody in the world will be better off. Uh, So that's what I I think our, our basic underlying idea ought to be. Finally, I think that we could have technology policies that are directed towards uh, improving our own productivity. One of the things about technical change that's important is that it doesn't just happen on its own. Mm-hmm. It's the result of decisions that people make. Some of these are the incentives that individual businesses have to adopt technologies. But a lot of basic research is paid for by governments, universities, charities. And uh, this basic research, I think, ought to be consciously directed towards uh, uh, establishing industries and technologies that will benefit all of us. Well, a last question for you. You're a university professor, and here at the OECD, we often have visits from high schools or universities. So what is your advice to these young people? You must see a new crop every every autumn as they, they start their studies and look forward to their working lives. What lessons from the past do they need to know? I think that uh, it's good to uh, develop uh, your your intellectual abilities and your general skills because you really don't know what the future is going to hold and you may have to shift from one activity to another. So being broadly educated is a good thing. I think that there are lots of good jobs in technical areas and I would certainly not discourage anybody from doing that. But my own experience is that uh, actually even uh, humanities graduates and social science graduates in general do quite well uh, over the course of their lives. So I think that uh, rather than worrying about which particular skills you learn at this stage, you're better off developing your general uh, analytical abilities and uh, your general skills that you can use to solve all sorts of problems. I'm Kate Lancaster, and you've been listening to OECD Podcasts. To find out more about the issues we've been discussing today, go to OECD.org. Thank you for choosing OECD Podcasts. OECD Podcasts.